If you uh, have a Bible with you, we're going to look at uh, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10 today. If you don't have a Bible, that's all right. There should be a red one on a seat nearby. That's for you to use today. And if you don't own a Bible at home, um, that's all right. We want you to take this one home with you or pick one up on our Connect table on the way out. We want to make sure everyone's got the Word of God available for them at home. So we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 10. Uh, verse, starting at verse 25, and we're looking at the parable of the Good Samaritan this, this morning. Um, we started a series last week called Jesus the Great Storyteller, and in that series, we are following Jesus sharing stories, uh, parables, seven of them from the Gospel of Luke. And we said last week that a parable is just this. Uh, a parable is a story that Jesus uses to teach us about living in the kingdom of God. It's, it's as simple as that. It's a story that teaches us what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God. And we believe that living in the kingdom of God uh, encompasses everything about our lives. Uh, the kingdom of God has to do with our relationship with God, yes, but also our relationship with others and our relationship with ourselves. And so this all-encompassing idea Jesus is sharing about in these parables. And we at Story Church, uh, we, we say we are inviting uh, neighbors into a new story shaped by Jesus. And that new story is all-encompassing. It has to do with how we treat our spouses and our kids, our coworkers, our friends, and our neighbors. In fact, one of the best ways to invite neighbors into the story is by loving our neighbors. And today's parable is all about how to love our neighbor. That's what the Good Samaritan's all about, right? How do we love our neighbor? And so that's what we're going to look at today. How, how do we do that? Uh, what does it look like to love our neighbor? Well, Jesus isn't going to get into the practicalness of it. He's more talking about the principles of it. But we're going to see in this parable, uh, there's three things that we need to do to love our neighbor. Uh, first, we need to hear the cry of neighborly love. We need to feel the weight of neighborly love. And we need to find our place in the story of neighborly love. If, if you've got your bulletin on the back, there's a space for notes. If you're a note taker, those are our three points. You've got to hear the cry of neighborly love, feel the weight of neighborly love, and find our place in the story of neighborly love. All right, we're going to go ahead and read Luke chapter 10, starting at verse 25. And behold... A lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, this is Jesus saying to the lawyer, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? So Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, Pass by on the other side also. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. 
Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever, makes, whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Uh, Heavenly Father, we pray that we would know what it truly means to love our neighbor this morning. Lord, we can only love because you first loved us. And so we ask for your spirit to fill our hearts with your word and remember how you have loved us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So first, we need to hear the cry of neighborly love. In uh, the summer of 1995, there was uh, a heat wave in the Midwest, the upper Midwest. And for uh, 10 straight days in the middle of July, uh, temperatures rose well above 100 degrees, and especially so in Chicago. In fact, the Chicago Tribune said that it was like roasting under a wet wool blanket. Now, uh, for many days, over 100 degrees, uh, most people started panicking, and those who had AC only had it for a little bit because the grid collapsed and the electricity went out, and so people were basically baking in brick buildings. And uh, after several uh, days, the coroners and the doctors uh, began to collect the, the individuals who had passed away during this intense heat wave, and uh, over 465 people were confirmed to have passed away. Uh, but that wasn't it, because a few weeks later, after uh, a few weeks and after the stench of decomposing bodies left the apartments and buildings, uh, there were 300 more dead neighbors found in the city of Chicago. And um, yeah, so a total of 740 deaths because of that week's warm weather. And in his book titled Them by uh, U.S. Senator Ben Sass, he recounts this story and shares the following. He says, Researchers from the CDC descended upon the city to learn how to better prepare for this kind of event in the future. But the results were less than surprising. Those who lacked air conditioning died at higher rates, and so did the elderly and the sick. We should expect that. Nevertheless, one sociologist, Eric Klinenberg, was still puzzled by what had happened. How, in a city of close to three million people, did so many people die and then go left unnoticed for weeks? When Klinenberg broke down from uh, neighborhood to neighborhood, he was struck by the conclusion that, demographically speaking, there was no difference between the neighborhoods that had the high death rate and the neighborhoods that had low death rate. So, so race, uh, economics, um, age had no deciding factor. But then he came to a deeper conclusion. The crucial variable, Klinenberg discovered, was social relationships. In the neighborhoods that fared well during the heat wave, residents knew who was alone, who was old, who was sick, and they took it upon themselves to do wellness checks. They encouraged other neighbors to knock on their neighbors' doors and see how they were doing. They checked in on one another, not just because it was, the heat was exceptional, but because that's what they had always done before. By contrast, the neighborhoods with higher death rates were areas that had been abandoned by businesses and residents over the previous several years. Only the unconnected remained. They died alone because they lived alone. 
Or in other words, there was no one there who could hear their cry for help. These unfortunate circumstances in Chicago in 1995 uh, are not too dissimilar from what is happening across the country in many cities, even like Cleveland and Mayfield Heights, where populations are decreasing and moving out from the cities into the suburbs. In fact, uh, over the last 30 years here in Mayfield Heights, the population has been decreasing. Um, people are moving out and less people are moving in. But it's not just that neighbors aren't sticking around and getting rooted. We actually are, are contributing or we're living in this more and more isolated community. I, I, bet, I bet everyone in this room in their pockets or in their purses have access to a cell phone, a smartphone. And that cell phone, that smartphone gives you access to the whole world. I mean, data and communication across the world is available to you right now. The world has shrunk down into the size of something you can put in your pocket. And yet we're not any more connected to each other than we were before. In fact, we're more isolated. Researchers have proven time and time again that with the rise of communication, our social isolation is actually increasing. And so actually, uh, two researchers have shown that in the last 30 years, every decade, that 10% uh, uh, more and more people, adults, are identifying as being lonely or isolated from others. Other research has shown that this social isolationism has actually increased health problems and has led to death. You know, this past spring and summer with the mandated isolation and quarantine, staying at home, it's just compounded to this already fractured neighborhood that's losing the, the, the fabric of what makes the city great, being great neighbors. We need to be connected to neighbors in order to thrive, and I think we've all experienced a little bit of the opposite in recent months. We need relationships to thrive, and that's a fundamental fact about humanity. If you think about the beginning of creation, when God created Adam, it was not good that Adam was alone. And so God took a, a rib from Adam and made Eve as a companion to him. He needed relationships. And our lawyer and the story and Jesus, they know that we need to love neighbors in order to live. Just look at what happens in verse 27 and 28. In 27, the lawyer says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, yes, if you do this, you will live. You see that there's this, this connection between loving people and life, loving others and thriving in society, loving others and finding abundant joy. The, the danger with this social isolationism is not so much that we could end up in, in pain, suffering, and death. The real danger is that if we're not being neighborly, we're losing out on truly living. In fact, the verse that the lawyer is quoting about loving your neighbor as yourself comes from the Old Testament. In the book of Leviticus, there's this chapter, chapter 19, that's all about loving your neighbor. And it's this beautiful chapter that points, paints this great picture of, of households and marketplaces and, and governments and courts and, and public sectors just thriving because people are looking out for one another. So the, so the poor are provided for, the oppressed are set free, the vulnerable are cared for. It's this beautiful picture that when we love one another, we all thrive. And that's such a stark difference to our world today in many ways. Here in Mayfield Heights, it's a city of just under 19,000 people, but that is actually decreasing. 
Because 10 years ago, there was over 19,000, and 20 years ago, there was over 19,500. And so every decade, every census data is decreasing in population. And I'm interested to see uh, the results of this year's census as well. But it's not just population uh, that's, that's dividing or that's leaving. Um, you know, think about, um, you know, when I'm walking up and down the street, we live in such a divisive and polarized community right now, uh, politically and socially. When I'm walking up and down the street and I see a political sign in someone's yard, it doesn't matter which candidate it is, I'm immediately judging or thinking about that neighbor, even though I've never met them before. You know, I, I've got a gut reaction to who they are, and I've never met them before. I mean, our, our city has such great potential for being a thriving community, and yet there's so many things working against us. You know, actually, in Mayfield Heights, 42% of the residents live in either apartment buildings or uh, living assisted living homes. Many of the buildings actually around this area are those apartment buildings. And, uh, you know, some of our people in Story Church live in those apartment buildings, and that's great. But they are physically and oftentimes socially disconnected from the rest of the community. It's almost like half of Mayfield Heights has been regulated to a different part of the city. The cry for neighborly love is strong all around the world, all around this country, but also right here in Mayfield Heights. Do you hear it? Do you hear the cry for neighborly love? Well, once we've heard the cry, we also need to know, all right, what does it demand of us? What is the weight of neighborly love? What does it look like now to move towards our neighbor and to love them? And this story is such a great example. I mean, the, great, the Good Samaritan is lifted up as this exemplary ideal of loving your neighbor. So let's look at what he does. Let's look at what the Samaritan does to this man and learn from him the weight of loving our neighbor. Looking at uh, 33. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, he came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound him up his wounds, poured oil and wine on him. Then he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. This man went above and beyond to show neighborly love. Let's pull out some principles of what he did. First, loving our neighbor asks us to be okay with our plans being interrupted. It asks us to be okay for our plans to be interrupted. We have to imagine the Samaritan already had plans. He was already heading from Jerusalem to Jericho when something interrupted him. And he said, that's okay. I, there's an immediate need ahead of me, and I need to take care of him. It means we need to be willing to stop what we're doing, to spend time with someone who needs our help. It means being ready and on call. I know parents in this room know what that feels like, to, to be able to be on call the moment you hear the crying baby or the kid that needs help. Or if you're in the medical profession and you're on call, you know what it means to have that beeper go off and be ready and willing to help. To love like this requires us to be okay letting our plans go to the back burner because someone else's needs are right there in front of us. But also loving our neighbor asks us to show compassion. I mean, the Samaritan saw the man. He didn't know who he was, didn't know where he came from, didn't know the circumstances that led him to this estate. And he said, I care for him. It was something in his heart. His heart moved towards the Samaritan. He doesn't know what's going on in this, life, in this man's life, but his heart breaks for him. 
So loving our neighbor like this asks us to soften our own hearts, to show empathy towards those that live around us, to, to see their pain, to weep with them when they're weeping, to hear their struggles, to hear and believe their pain. It asks us to show compassion. But also loving your neighbor asks us to pay a price. Like the Samaritan, he, he puts the man on his own donkey and walks beside it. He gets to the innkeeper. He pours uh, oil and wine, precious oil and wine, on the wounds of this man. He pays for room and board. He says, I'm going to take care of him. No matter the cost, when I come back, I will pay for whatever it takes to heal this man. Sometimes, friends, it is going to cost us to love our neighbor. It might cost us money. In fact, it, it will cost us money, but it will also cost us our time, our energy, our attention, even our identity at times, to go and to love like this man loved. It's also going to ask us to get our hands dirty, to get messy. Can you imagine this man has been beaten, he's bloody, he's broken, he's lying in the dirt, naked, and this man goes over to him, grabs him around his own arms, lifts him up on his shoulders, carries him to his donkey. The Samaritan had to put away his sense of shame, his sense of being embarrassed. He had to be willing to get down in the dirt to get his hands messy and do the hard work of sitting with this man and loving him. But finally, loving your neighbor asks us to show solidarity with our neighbor, no matter where they come from. No matter their racial background, their religious affiliation, or their cultural identity. This isn't readily apparent for us 21st century readers in this text. But in the time of Jesus, when he told this story, the moment that he said, but along came a Samaritan, you had to imagine everyone's jaws dropped to the floor. Because for Jesus' day, a Samaritan was not just some guy from a different part of the country. And these guys were the enemy. These guys were the, the racial, religious, and cultural enemy. You see, in Israel's history, uh, God's people were exiled out of their land. But those people that remained there, they tried to reestablish themselves. And the way that they did that was by intermarrying with the pagan nations around them. And so they, they began to adapt cultural practices that weren't Israelite practices. They began to adopt religious practices that weren't Jewish religious practices. And so they, they actually got rid of most of the Old Testament. They erected their own places of worship. They intermarried and had kids with foreign women and men. But then it wasn't just that. When the Greek and Roman occupying armies came in, the Samaritans sided with them, the enemy occupying military power. And so for a Jew, they hated Samaritans. In fact, in chapter 9 of this book, uh, two of Jesus' disciples are walking with him and they pass through a Samaritan village. And the Samaritans reject Jesus. They say, no, we don't want to listen to you. And on their way out, these two followers of Jesus who have been listening to Jesus say, do you want us now to call down fire upon them and destroy them? And that's how much they hated Samaritans. And yet Jesus says, love like him. Love like the Samaritan who found solidarity with his fellow human being. It doesn't matter what race you're from, what religion you're from, what cultural practices you identify with. We are called to love because every one of us deserves that love because we're made in the image of God. You see, the Samaritan understood that this has plagued the human race for generations all the way back to the beginning. Adam and Eve's children 
They didn't understand that we are, in fact, our brother's keeper. We are, in fact, obligated to care for one another in this world. We are linked to one another. And we don't understand that as Westerners and Americans. We don't understand the communal element of this. You know, we tend to think of ourselves as these self-autonomous beings that what, what we do matters and what they do matters, but what they do doesn't affect me, what I do doesn't affect them. But in more communal communities, this makes a lot more sense, that we are linked to them. We are linked to everyone else. Like, it's almost as if in their flourishing, we flourish, but in their demise, we are demised. When they live, we live, but when they're dying, we're dying. That was the beauty of this love from the Samaritan. He understood that. And Jesus says, you need to rise above selfishness, bigotry, hatred. You need to rise above that and love like the Samaritan loved. Man, the weight of neighborly love is intense, right? It requires so much. It requires our time, our energy, our money, our affections. And the lawyer understood that. You see, in the questioning that Jesus asked him, he said, what does the law say? What does the law require you to do? And he says, to love the Lord your God with all of my heart, all of my body, all of my mind, all of my strength, and to love my neighbor as myself. He understood that the way in which we love God wholly and completely is by loving our neighbors like, like that. To love our neighbors is the expression of our love of God. This man, the lawyer, knew the weight that neighborly love required. But when we feel the weight, we've got some options, don't we? We can either say, that's too hard, I can't do it. Or we can say, is that really what he's asking me to do? And that's actually what the lawyer does. And this leads me to my third point. We need to find our place in the story. We need to look at this story and say, who am I in this story? Let's look at how the, Samaria, or the lawyer responds to this great weight of neighborly love. He says, Jesus, come on, help me out. I, I can't possibly do that. I can't possibly love the way that the scriptures are telling me to love. Come on, Jesus, help me out. Who really is my neighbor? It's so much easier to love my family. It's so much easier to love my friends, those who look like me and act like me. But you're asking me to love everyone? Come on, Jesus, who is my neighbor? This might seem like an, a natural question for us to ask, but actually Luke and Jesus know that he's really asking this in an attempt to justify himself, to prove himself that before Jesus, before the people around him, before God, to say, look, I can do it. That is a high demand, but look, if I tweak it this way, then I can do it. That's what he's trying to do. And yet Jesus begins to tell the story as an invitation to that lawyer, the invitation to the listener to question, is that really the best response? When, when we are faced with the great weight of neighborly love, we have two options. We can either say, I can't do it, or, hey, can we redefine it? And then I might be able to do it. Well, this story that Jesus tells, this parable, Jesus is inviting us to figure out which response do we need to have. He invites the lawyer, he invites his listeners to identify with someone in the story. This is often the case with parables. Jesus tells stories, and often there's, there's a God character or something that represents the kingdom. But more often, there's a character in the story that the listener is invited to identify with. Think of the, uh, the lost sheep. 
When Jesus shares that, he's in the presence of tax collectors and sinners. And that parable is about a shepherd who goes and finds the lost sheep and invites it back into the fold. Obviously, the listeners are supposed to identify with the sheep who has been lost and how much joy there is in heaven when that sheep is found. And so too here, the lawyer and we are invited to identify ourselves in the story. We are invited to find our place in the story. So, who's the lawyer? All right, so first, who comes up first? The priest. The priest comes down and he sees the man and he passes by on the other side. And too often, I think that we defend the priest and we say, well, he didn't want to be ritually unpure. He didn't want to touch this possibly dead corpse. But in fact, the priest knew fully well of his, his need to go and love his neighbor. And so it's shameful that the priest passed by along the other side. So the lawyer says, no, I'm not the priest. Here comes a Levite, the assistant to the priest who lives and works in the temple. Surely, if the priest didn't, surely the Levite would do it. The lawyer says, all right, finally, someone who's a true Israelite, he'll go and help the neighbor, right? No, he passes by on the other side too. So the lawyer's like, whoa, man, what's going on? So then Jesus says, a Samaritan comes. Oh, no way. No way, Jose. I am not the Samaritan. No, I will never identify with a Samaritan. That's not me. Okay. Well, then who's left? Who's left in the story for us to identify with? The man in the ditch. What Jesus is doing is he's inviting the lawyer and he's inviting us not to identify with the man who loves the neighbor perfectly, because we realize we can't do that. He's actually inviting us to identify with the man who is half dead, beaten, broken, lying in the ditch. Because before Jesus and before a holy God, before the great high demand of loving God with everything that we have and loving our neighbor as ourselves, we stand before that God wholly bankrupt. We stand before him utterly falling short of that standard. We have to identify as the man in the ditch because that's who we are before a holy and righteous God. This story is telling us that like the lawyer, we stand absolutely bankrupt before the unachievable demand of total devotion, total allegiance, total love of God. We are spiritually beaten, broken, and left for dead. Friends, this is the key to how we can actually go and love our neighbors. Until you see your helpless estate, you will never be able to help those around you. Until you know your need for life-saving mercy, you will never be able to extend mercy the way that Jesus asks us to. Until you see your need to experience compassion, you will never be able to show compassion truly to others. Until you see yourself as the man lying dead in the road, you will never become the kind of person who can truly love your neighbor. This is why we need to find our place in the story. We're tempted to say, look how good I am. I'm like the good Samaritan. Jesus invites us to identify with the man beaten, broken, and left for dead. But here's the good news. Jesus is in the story too. And only because Jesus is in this story do we have any hope. Because Jesus is the Good Samaritan. How? How, how is Jesus the Good Samaritan? Well, Jesus gets off of his throne. 
He steps down into our world when he dwelled among us. He walked over and saw us lying there dead and said, my heart breaks for you. I have compassion on you. He goes over and picks us up bloody and muddy. He says, I'll take your shame. Let me take your embarrassment. He The good Samaritan had some sort of idea of what it might cost him to heal this man. Jesus absolutely knew what it would cost him to heal us. By his wounds, we are healed. It costs him his life. Jesus is our good Samaritan who has brought us back to life. He has mended our wounds. He has given us his riches. He has turned us from enemies to friends. He has made us alive so that now in him and through him, we can love our neighbor. Look, this is the power of the gospel. The gospel, yes, it is our, our, our ticket out of here. It does save us. It is the true message that we are rescued from our sin, but it is so much more than that. It is not just the ABCs. It is the A to Z of life. The gospel changes everything about us, not just our relationship with God, but every relationship we have is affected by the gospel. We are a gospel-centered church because we believe the gospel changes everything. Look, here's some practical ways that the gospel changes how we live with one another, how we love our neighbor. I mentioned this loneliness epidemic, our our social isolationism. This is what the gospel does. It creates a new community of people who know their brokenness, but know their complete loving and acceptance by God the Father. And this new community is real with one another. It's vulnerable with one another because we have the security that God will never reject us because Jesus took that rejection for us. Look, if you are lonely, if you're isolated, the church is God's gift to you to find an identity in Christ where you will never be rejected. The gospel changes everything. Second, the gospel enables us to love our neighbor with deep compassion and empathy. Look, it's easy I admitted it, to pass judgment on others when we see the political sign. It's easy to pass judgment when we hear about marriages falling apart or when we witness teenagers misbehaving. It's easy for us to look at our neighbors and pass judgment on them and just and criticize them, right? It's easy for us to do that. But the gospel says that apart from the mercy of God, you are the dead man in the ditch. You have no right to pass judgment on one another, but only because the mercy of God through his son Jesus are you saved. And so that enables us, it frees us to not pass judgment, to show empathy and compassion because it's all by grace. You could never do it yourself. Finally, the gospel enables us to endure the cost of loving our neighbors. When we see that it was by his own wounds that we are healed, when it was by his own death that we've been brought back to life, we understand that he was willing to give everything for us. When we truly believe that he gave everything for us, man, that is a promise that we can then give what we've got to others. Because we, we know if he's going to give his life to save us, then he'll promise to give us everything we need to live. We don't have to worry about giving too much because Jesus has promised to give everything we need to live. Look, the gospel changes everything, changes every sphere of our lives, and most certainly enables us to love our neighbor. We are a gospel-centered church because we believe the gospel affects every area of our lives. It empowers us, it compels us here in our own city, 
on our own streets to love one another. This power only comes from when we first see our place in the story. When when we understand who we are and what Jesus has done for us, he is our good Samaritan. Let us go to him. Let's bring all of our junk to him. Let's say, Jesus, I need your mercy. Let's cry out to him, Lord, have mercy on me. I am dead. We need him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this word. This word that gives us hope. Lord, that you have loved us. You have given everything to us, even your life. And so we ask through your spirit that when we truly believe that, that it sets us free, it empowers us, it compels us and moves us toward our neighbors to love them the way that you have called us to love them. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.